This is the Barbarian Rhetoric Podcast. Acta non verba. Welcome to another uh, episode of Barbarian Rhetoric. Today I am uh, joined by Neil Victorian and Graham Smith. Just sitting here, my IQ is going up with these two great men. So this is going to be a wonderful conversation today, and uh, welcome. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thank you, Nathan. It's good to be here. And we're going to jump right into it today. And what was interesting and part of why this podcast came about is shortly after the last time with Neil, I was talking to Graham, and Graham was hitting me with all these ideas, and I'm like, oh, we should do a podcast with all three of us. So here we are, and this is why we're doing this. To start this off, we're going to go with writing influence um, in the meaning of neo-Victorianism. Uh, that's a tongue twister. Neo-Victorianism. Where did all that come about? Uh well, Nathan, it uh, neo-Victorian. I got that um, from um, Neil, um, the uh, Neil Stevenson's book, The Diamond Age, uh, which came out about twenty years ago, and has been it's been influential on me. I mean, it's a pretty well-known book. Um, I have a lot of science fiction influences, and uh, a lot of uh, of other like popular literature from earlier days. I guess you could say. Um, but in, uh, in the Diamond Age, the Neo-Victorians are a group of file, they're called, in, in a world where national governments have lost a lot of influence. Um, there are these groupings that are like transnational and people of like mind, and they form themselves into sort of, to be brief, like a self-protective organization um, or a mutual benefit society, you might say, and there are a number of them in the book, and the Neo-Victorians are one, and they, the main thing that I got, uh, that I remembered, and I've always um, used and thought about, is that there was this little speech about how Neo-Victorians believe some things are better than others. That's uh, something our current culture and media right now seems still just like they were for the last many years determined to uh to try to say that that is not true but some things really are better than others you know i believe some individuals are better than others we want to have them around some cultures some nations i mean you look at the reality of the situation so that's a little bit of rebellion against um you know radical equality and that's what neo-victorianism is all about Okay, and it, it's fun how we take away, like, like I use Steel Jans, and that comes from some of my past books, and you're pulling Neil from that. It's interesting how often we pull from the literature that we enjoyed when we were younger or when we come about it and bring that up into what we're doing now. And I'm yeah, going to let Graham I, lead. I, oh, go yeah. ahead. I'm just going to, I'll say, you know, it, I explicitly at the end of my books, like, you know, unlike, I guess, most authors, it's like, I do name some of the other folks that I think influenced me. And, they, you know, originally my, my hero in the books, Cal Adler, um, the very, very first conception of him was sort of like a modern Philip Marlowe 
from Raymond Chandler's, uh, you know, detective book, sort of like a private eye, uh, only set in our current times. But there were, there was, uh, there was a lot of that and, and a lot of that has still come through, you know, there was some evolution of the character and some changes and things, but there's still that, uh, part in the book sanity um the investigator part but that was uh, a big influence on the kind of character that he originally was conceived as neil i've just finished uh just about finished reading listening to the audio of neil stephen's latest book which is i think it's called uh fall dodge and hell which is a sequel to another one called remedy so, yes. so both of those are fantastic, and I've read uh, I've read the Diamond Age and Snow Crash and some of the other ones too. I was I wanted to ask you about um, the meaning of speculative as in speculative fiction. So I know that's that's a genre that you've kind of associated yourself with, and Neil Stevenson uh, as well. And also uh, my wife, who's writing as well, she's she's kind of sees that as her, her niche as well. And I, I know there's some confusion sometimes about, you know, what is speculative fiction and how is it different to science fiction? And maybe there's a bit of a blurry definition or something, but I'd be really interested to hear you unpack that a little bit and talk about, you know, what you think of when you hear the word speculative fiction and whether that does characterize your work or whether, whether, whether there's something else that's better or, yeah. Well, sure. I, and by the way, uh, S.G. Smith's uh, two books. I was, that's, that was, I was fascinated by when it was called, spe she called it speculative fiction. I read the first one and I was very intrigued by the speculative part and, um, and the hints that there of what might come. So the second book is out, if you're listening, folks. Um, and uh, those, I think they're fantastic. But uh, just briefly, you know, science fiction, um, the terminology came up in like the 1930s, uh, and and then I one of my main influences, Robert Heinlein, um, he talked about speculative fiction um, as being you know science fiction was certainly a big part of it, but uh, you take uh, ideas um, and the current <clears throat> realities of the situation, you uh, extrapolate not just science and technology, but also social trends, um, you know, innovations in human organization, and those can also be speculative fiction. Um, so it, you might say science fiction is uh, traditionally a large part of speculative fiction, uh, but that was, that's basically the way I see it is um, you're, you know, a lot of novels are realistic, they're supposed to be set in a world like ours and nothing that we know to be impossible can be done in these realistic books. Some books are fantasy. They're categorized um, forthrightly as having things that are seemingly physically impossible in our world. And uh, speculative fiction tries to, um, to present uh, ideas that are, perhaps thought impossible, but what would be the implications if a way was found? A lot of things were thought impossible a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, were thought completely impossible and we're doing them right now. So that's, that's where I, that's what I think of speculative fiction. Um, my books are not, I, I don't know. I guess I think of them. I, I never really thought of them as speculative fiction or science fiction. Um, 
the genre is sort of a mix of, uh, of detective, science fictional elements, uh, and it, they're kind of uh, they're kind of strange and uh, hard to pin down. I think so. Uh, there's a there's a speculative element about like I guess psychology and um, uh, you know psychological cyber psycho psycho cybernetic techniques things like that um, human performance. There's some speculation about that. Nice one. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I guess the other thing that was on my mind too, and, and this is something that's general for me, is I'm quite interested in creativity and the creative process and, um, you know, watching watching my, my kids learn to write and getting involved in writing stories and watching Susan write. And, and in my work, I do a lot of writing as well, but it tends to be quite technical writing because I, I work in education. So a lot of that writing that I do, it's not so much for pleasure. It's writing that I have to do because it's my job, but there's an aspect of creativity to it at times anyway. So I'm quite interested in people's creative process and what they do. And I know that sometimes uh, different things happen. Sometimes, you know, you, you just get this vision or this idea and you can just sit down and, and the whole thing kind of comes out on, on paper or on the computer. Other times you've got to kind of work hard to, to grind it out. And I was, so I was interested to hear from you perhaps and Nathan as well, you know, Nathan, you do a lot of writing um, for the blog. What, what does, so Nia, what does your creative process look like? Is it, um, can you kind of set up the conditions for it in a way that makes it easy for that, for those creative processes to happen? Uh, or, or is it different every time for you? What is, so, so yeah, so what is your creative process? What does it look like? Well, that's, uh, I, I know I'm, Mine is a little bit chaotic, I'd say. I compared to a lot of writers I know who are very organized, who have outlines for their work. Um, I have ideas uh, and scenes. Um, I do uh, some of my best work is it's almost unconscious. Um, I visualize a scene um, and what's happening, and I got my characters, uh, you know, that I kind of know well, I guess you could say, and. Um, I let it unfold um, without trying too hard at times. And, you know, like, especially what, you know, the action scenes, as they're so-called, scenes of violence, um, those unfold on an almost unconscious level um, because I just let them go in a natural way in mind and uh, put that down. Um, and the other part, there is also definitely some grinding involved. Sometimes... Um, I've just had to to just make myself keep going on a scene um, or, you know, a piece of the work. And and after I managed to do that a few times, it got easier and easier. I had more and more faith that even if I felt no spark of creativity whatsoever, if I put words on paper, I would be able to go back later and, and make them better. And that's, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of things that are not recommended by writing teachers you know i i generally correct the the works i go along i i type a few few sentences i'm a terrible typist frankly and um usually i correct things like paragraph by paragraph as i go i don't spew it all out and go back and edit it later which is highly recommended by uh, <laughs> by most writing well, coaches so, even graham graham recommends that but this makes me yeah. feel good 
because I write the same way. I can't go more. If I see a whole bunch of marks, I'm <laughs> correcting them. And if I don't, I will lose my train of thought. There, there's my problem. I need to go back and correct those words so I can continue on my thought process. When I do a whole dump, like, like I'm, I, what was it, free writing. If I'm just doing the free writing like Graham suggests to do, is that when I get done reading and I have no idea what I was trying to accomplish. I, I guess the thing there is sometimes, like if you have to teach writing to people, which is something that I've done, you know, not so much on with fiction, but we're teaching people how to write essays and, and things like that for university. You have to break that. You have to have a way to break the process down into a series of steps, so that someone who's not a writer can figure out well what is it that writers do and how you know what's a manageable step and then another step and then another step. So that so that's where some of that some of those ideas about you know just do the creative thing and now switch that off and now just do the editing thing and hey look switch back to the creative. So I think for people that are learning to write, that that can be helpful. But I think you're right. I mean, I, I'm probably a hypocrite as well because I, I mean, I like you guys, that's what I do. I tend to, to I also correct when I'm writing. But I know that when I'm, for example, you know, I've got three kids, my middle one's, she's 15. So something that's helpful to tell her when she's stuck on something is, hey, look, just forget about all that kind of, forget about the grammar, forget about the spelling, forget about, you know, your outline if you have one. Just, just get on, just let it flow. And then let's come back to that at another time. So I think it's a, for me, it's something that's come out of working with people who often don't think of themselves as writers or, or don't know how to get started writing and are looking for some strategies. But I think once you, once you've got that, once you've got the technique, once you've got the, the technical skills, you can do that. You know, you can write, you can create, and you can edit on, on the fly. So, so yes, I, just thought I'd put some caveats around some of the some of the messages that I'm putting out there. <laughs> well, but but I think I, I've learned, and you have to know your audience and what you're trying to strive for. Like I was doing more of a long formish essays, and then I needed to change things to more of a blog format. So I'm still writing my stuff in an essay, and I correct it, but then I start working my way backwards to turn it into more of a blog format. So if you're writing for a book or a blog or you're writing a technical essay, I think they all have that certain style. And I, I have found that if I'm, if I'm trying to write out a story or something or work on, a, on one of my book projects, I can't switch between that and go back to working on the blog my mind does not flip. I'm either in one mode or the other. So yes, that, that becomes a challenge in the creation process. Yeah, I think, yeah, in fiction is, is a little bit different. I think that, you know, Graham's and, you know, the, the recommended methods for me that worked pretty well for like college papers. I like to think I wrote some pretty great college papers and they were definitely more organized and outlined and, um, that with with my two books you know one of the things is that the pieces uh, have been rearranged um you know that they're not in time they're not in linear time sequence um pieces are taken and um and in both books uh well in the first book especially i i i would i wrote a chapter which i call a scene and they were moved around um various ways to 
to to make a mosaic that uh, you know it's sometimes hard to follow, I guess. But that the idea is that, that now there's an element of surprise. There's foreshadowing. I don't know. Um, I chose to do it that way, um, and and so I've written some of the pieces that were written earlier are are now later in the book, and and so on. And I think some writers. Uh, many fiction writers that I've talked to, they can't, they don't do that. They write from the beginning of the story and they work on it to the end most of the time. Um, some do and some don't. So, you know, my second book has the first whole part. It, it's, it's a little bit more linear, or at least part of it is. Um, but that's one of the things that's kind of interesting is, is, is when you write something and where it ends up in, in, a, in a book, uh, sometimes... It's not evident, but it's interesting. Uh, I, I read all of book two yesterday. So I, I finished, <laughs> I, I was about 80% there on book one. And I finished that the other day. And then I, because I knew we were talking today, I thought, right, I've, I've got to finish book two. So I pretty much spent all of yesterday reading it. And it, you're, you're right. I think that the first book, it took me ages to, um, I think you warm up to it. Like the, the fact that it's out of sequence takes a little bit of getting used to if, you, if you're someone that's used to reading fiction that is in a linear sequence. So it does take a bit of warming up to. But after I warmed up, it kind of made sense. I could feel that I was dipping in and out of those different timelines. You know, there's something happening three or four years ago, something happening 12 years ago, something that's in the, in the present. And then there's these little surprises that you realize something's possibly happening tomorrow as opposed to today, which I really liked. So that was, that was really intriguing. But I just I wanted to say one of the things that made me feel so two two things that have been on my mind. One is that it took me one year to read Sanction by our buddy uh, Roman McClay, and I'd start it and I'd stop it and I'd start it and I'd stop because it's it's a similar type of thing that it you know the time the the story is all out of whack and it jumps all over the show and I've, that was a hard thing for me to get my head around. But I got there in the end. But I think uh, having spent that year kind of trying to read through that book, I kind of knew what was happening when I was, when I was reading your books, because it was like, Oh, I, I understand this, what's going on now with the in and out of, in and out of time. So I think, yeah, that, that kind of warmed me up to it. And the other thing that I was thinking yesterday after I'd finished your second book, which I loved by the way, um, some of the short stories that I've written, when I think about what I was doing in them, they were actually jumping all over the show as well. And at the time I felt like it wasn't really anything that I wanted to share because they were so fragmented and so disjointed. But I think after reading sanction and reading sanity and reality, it's kind of like, well, actually maybe I'll go back to some of that stuff that I've written, which is fiction, which is something that I haven't really explored for myself. And I feel quite happy to perhaps revisit some of that stuff and share it. So, so the two books, have been quite encouraging for me in that, in that way. Please do share it. I, you know, <laughs> that would be exciting. We, the, the more, the better. Um, yeah, I've read, you know, some of your longer form essays and, and everything, and I would love to see some fiction if you're going to put it out there. Okay. I'll, this challenge, I'll do that. See, there's more book ideas already, already getting going. <laughs> Hey, can I can I ask some questions about some of the themes? Go for it. Sure. Let's hit. So I I grew up uh, really fascinated with 
things that now probably fall into the category of esoteric and esoterica. And some, some of those things when I was a teenager probably became a bit of an unhealthy obsession for a while. For example, um, you know, angels and demons and UFOs and things like that really fascinated me. And I, I didn't have, I had a few things to read, but um, it's kind of something that stuck with me over the years. And I've been through different phases of being not interested and being skeptical and then being interested again. And something that for me, something that comes through from uh, sanity and reality, there's, there's a mystical uh, aspect. There's kind of a mystical theme or thread that that's running, that runs through the two books and it pops up in different ways. And I really like it. And there's little touches of things. I don't, I guess I'm not picking up on all of the references, but every now and then I'll see something. I go, ah, that's, that's a reference to Freemasonry, for example, like there's, there's a scene in the second book where I think Cal's trying to decide, does he go west? Does he drive west or does he drive east? And then something pops into his head about the worshipful master approaching from the east. It's like, I, I'm not a Freemason, but my grandfather was. And I think, I don't know that much about it, but I know that that's a reference to Freemasonry. So, and that's just one example of all these little beautiful uh, esoteric gems that get, get kind of dropped in for the reader. So... I don't know whether I have a specific question, but I was just interested um, in your take on some of those things because I know that they're deliberate. Yeah, yeah, I, I like you, um, um, was into and have been interested in a lot of different esoteric uh, things over the years. Yeah, I, you know, uh, when I was uh, 15, 16, I even kind of specifically say a little line in, in Sanity about you know, those UFO authors I liked so much when I was 15 years old. Um, and I really got into that for a while. I, uh, I really got into, you know, I investigated Scientology, which I guess is esoteric. And um, I, I was interested in that. L. Ron Hubbard, as a science fiction author, um, you know, nowadays he's just associated with Scientology in most people's minds. He actually was a very interesting writer, I think. Um, you know, and, and Scientology does not have a generally good reputation. I mean, with um, most people don't know that much about it. I was um, interested in it and I studied, uh, I read some of his books and so on. And, and that's the big influence is in um, the rehumanist movement and the church of rehumanism is something, a theme that runs throughout the books, um, kind of important thing. And I won't give too much away about that there's more to it then, you know, meets the eye. But uh, uh, that's one that's one thing that, that's very strong in the books. And there is a lot about, yeah, um, you know, the idea that, uh, the idea that our thoughts, um, you know, that, that the way we manage our thoughts and that they do manifest, um, they manifest themselves in our reality. Um, and that's really not, even esoteric anymore. I think I, I have a little thing, a, a little brief thing where it's, you know, it's, it's scientific um, that it's, you know, psychology, their studies and experiments have shown that if you have a positive attitude, you get statistically a better outcome. It's not, it's not enormous. You can't, you know, I don't believe that you can make a coin dance across the table uh, or that you can, you know, um, that you can really directly 
cause physical events to happen with just the mind. But on the other hand, mind, um, it's been shown that the way we think um, has physical manifestations in our own bodies in what we think we're capable of doing to the world as well. The things we think we can do, um, that they do change the physical world. You know, everything that we see around us, every table and chair and rocket ship taking a satellite up was a thought. And, um, and so that's, yeah, the way that, uh, that I'd put it, that, that's had a, that has a big influence in the books um, and in uh, my own life as well. So I'm just thinking of another example. I think it's in book two where, I mean, to bring it down to, to, to a very kind of micro level, Cal, the protagonist, is, is having a drink with one of the women that he meets. And um, Nathan, on our list of things to discuss, I think was neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis. It was that I saw you pop that suggestion in. And I was just thinking of an example in the story where Cal is having a drink having one of those fantastic whiskeys perhaps in a, in a bar somewhere. I can't remember which, which woman it's with, but he seems to be pacing her or something like he puts his drink down and she puts her drink down or he picks his drink up and she picks her drink up. And it's kind of like, I, I wasn't looking for that stuff in the first book It's possibly there, but in the second book, there's a few moments like that where it seems to be, uh, and again, I'm not, an, I don't know about NLP or hypnotism, but, some of those kind of things seem to be going on where Cal has these powers to influence people or to manipulate people or to cause things to happen in little ways. And sometimes it's his physical actions that he's doing and someone's mirroring him or he's mirroring somebody. So I don't know. Is, is that, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Is that the neurolinguistic programming or is that the kind of Scott Adams influence coming through? That. Yes, uh, that's something I learned from studying neurolinguistic programming or NLP. Um, and NLP is based in large part on what is called Ericksonian hypnosis, which is what Scott Adams apparently studied. Um, Milton Erickson was a hypnosis, hypnotist who lived in Arizona, and um, he was a therapeutic hypnotist. He helped many, many people um, with pain management and you know, all kinds of things. Uh, and so the NLP guys um, based a lot of their work, uh, a lot of what they did on him. And, and those techniques are, um, they're, they're a real thing. Uh, you know, the idea of the speaking, speaking um, in faster, slower cadence, repetition of certain words, um, and, and the mirroring, mirroring of people's um, actions they're breathing you know you breathe with them you know you watch their chest rise and fall and you adjust your breathing to that you adjust your gestures and your pace of speaking to them and it's a fact that that will produce a rapport that the other person is probably not conscious of now one of my thoughts along this line that in reading it on the French, never studying it, but it follows, is a lot of times either in fiction or historical fiction, especially when you're talking about the ancients, is we go between science and magic all the time. You know, where does one leave off and the other starts? Nowadays, we call this science. 
But if you looked at like the Druids at the early, you know, 1600s or something, or even even farther back than that, you know, in the 1000s, or you go back and you look at um, some of uh, Robert E. Howard's stuff and that he blends it into there and, and along that lines, how much of this was being practiced back then and was more along the lines of shamanism or, or the magic users were using what we call science today? Do you think those two blend together and that, that we've broken it up into a science um, terminology where at once it was considered magic? Yeah, Graham, do you want to address that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think maybe it is. I mean, technology is pretty mysterious and things that we can do now would definitely be considered magic if we went back not so very far in history. So, I mean, that, that opens another whole rabbit hole into Twitter and, and the internet around technologies and ancient technologies and things like that, which is, you know, it's another area of fascination for me. So I don't know. I don't have a hard and fast answer on it. Well, and here's another thought. When you were writing some of those passages, Neo, were you looking at it from a more mystical standpoint or a more science standpoint? Well, that's a great question. I, I think like some of the things that I just talked about, I consider them science, you know, psychological science, you might say. I think that they're proven in the laboratory um, to work. But, you know, a thing that I go on about a little bit here and there in the books is, is how science now is considered, you know, nothing but atoms. I mean, they try to explain human behavior in terms of, well, neurons are firing and chemicals are being exchanged and electricity. And, you know, if your chemical level of a certain thing is higher, then you're happier. And, and I think there's, I don't deny any of that, but I think, What's happened versus, you know, they tried to get rid of magic completely by saying that everything is matter. And um, I don't personally think that we can sit here and try to explain um, everything in the world through the action of matter and electro, you know, magnetic, you know, photons hitting at electrons and, you know, electricity and chemicals. Um, I, I, a lot of people think that they're being scientific when they deny there can be anything else. But I just think that there, there are things acting in the universe that we probably don't have the tools to perceive directly. We can see electromagnetic phenomenon. We can see photons hitting our eyeballs. Um, but that's where I come from in, in these books is that's something that these people recognize that that uh, it's not all matter in the void. Um, and, and now a lot of people, they don't want to say that because then they're, they're unscientific. And, you know, the, the current, um, like, left, let's say, I don't want to get too political today, but <laughs> one of the great things about the left that they always talk about is how scientific they are and how religious folks are, you know, just uh, believe in some sky God that they can't see. And it's all a bunch of bullshit. So, you know, but we're, we're scientific, we're materialists. And the materialist philosophy, um, if you stick to it, 
completely and absolutely, you know, pretty soon you're left with, well, I, in my opinion, you're left with, okay, well, it's okay to, you know, knock a few people off for the greater good of society. It's okay, you know, to, to make things better here on earth. If we have to break some eggs, um, like the communists did, you know, if we have to kill 10 million people to bring socialist paradise, well, you know, they're just collections of atoms, man. So it's, you know, it, I, I mean, I'm not, this is, I'm not, this is not original to me, but uh, it's an implication I see in the world. And uh, so that's something I tried to address that maybe there is more than atoms and photons that affect the bigger reality. And on this, Graham, and when I read the books, I felt book one leaned more to the mystical side and uh, book two leaned more to the science side. Even though it blended it together, that's how I felt like the timeline went in the, the type of timeline that these books have. But I felt like, like you went from, hey, this is um, like the first meeting with, um, oh, names drawn to blank. He was the counselor. When Mr. Had, White. Mr. White, when he had his first meeting, you know, there's a whole bunch of secret mysticism slightly, and it grew from there. And then into book two, it started looking at more of the sciences of it. So that, that's why I was curious on that one. Uh, one well, of the mystical, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Graham. I was just going to say one of the mystical ones that kind of came through with book one for me that I've been thinking about was, you know, I think it's Cal and James head out into the desert and they have this kind of experience out in the desert. And I, to me, that felt it, it when I was reading it, it was like these, these guys are high or they're on LSD or shrooms or something. And I don't know whether that was referenced in book one, but it's referenced in book two that it, they were taking mushrooms or something like that. Is that right? That when they're out in the desert and they were having a mystical experience or some kind of experience that um, it, it was like a psychedelic experience. But uh, yeah, so I felt that in book one, but I got the clarification for that uh, in book two. And then the other things that felt a little bit mystical, maybe not so much mystical, but part of that secret society vibe was um, there's, there's, kind of like uh, the inner inner circle, outer circle, inner church, outer church, that, you know, you, you just think you're getting into the inner circle and you realize there's another layer to it or there's another initiation that is happening that you're not aware of until after it's happened. And then you, you realize that Cal is now on the inside of something that he wasn't on the inside before. So those kind of uh, things aren't always what they seem. Uh, it's To me, it's still kind of mystical, but perhaps in a, manifesting in a different way in book two, perhaps, than it was in book one. Well, I will clarify that, yeah, I, the, he, he does take psilocybin mushrooms um, out in the desert, and, uh, and that's, you know, has that experience of, um, you know, of seeing a lot of things and, and learning something, I guess. And his, James had already done it, and James doesn't do it there, but is the guide, so to speak. So that's just, it was just a little something about, you know, going, going a little deeper into, into that. And I think, um, yeah, the idea of the, uh, of there being layers has always fascinated me. And I, I frankly just borrowed that from like uh, Heinlein 
who, uh, you know, mentioned it more than once in his different books, especially in Stranger in a Strange Land, which you guys may or may not have read. You've probably at least heard of it, perhaps. And, yeah, um, I've read it. You have read it. Okay. And, and the outer church and the inner church idea uh, was, I specifically just borrowed it from having read that book. Well, and I, I think that leads into... Um, that's replicated throughout the world. You've got the, you know, the outer group, the inner group, and then you have the core group that's even in the side. It's just, I don't know, as we as humans, we build that hierarchy. It's almost like it can't not happen. You put, you put two, two guys together and all of a sudden there's an hierarchy. You put three, then there's, you know, it just keeps growing. As you add more people to it, there, there, you get these different levels. It's like a law of nature, basically. It's, it operates in all animal groups, pretty much. Any kind of animals that have a society, um, they have sort of a structure like that. And, uh, you know, that's really interesting. I think one thing I would relate that to in sanity and reality is um, I talk about, you know, the, what I call the real order, um, which is the real inner circle that runs the world or tries to. Um, and I, I don't in, in real life, <laughs> you know, think that it's any, it, it's nearly tightly as tightly controlled or as formal as it, you know, I kind of imply in the book to a certain extent, but um, you know, if you, uh, then you bring that up, if you look at something like, let's say um, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, we have uh like the people now, we have President Trump. Well, you know, his daughter married a multimillionaire son of a New York financier. You know, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton's daughter, she married a New York financier, right? These people, you know, our, our current real order, if we can call it that, um, you know, presidents and so on. I mean, mostly they marry off their kids or their kids decide for themselves. Um, you know, they go to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and they meet the other elite kids and they marry them. And so how much different is it really from the way the Royal families operated in Europe for hundreds of years? You know, uh, you know, Chelsea Clinton ain't going to marry, uh, you know, some nice house painter from Colorado, um, you know, or anything like that. So there's a, you know, I, uh, in the book, you know, it's, it's fiction, but in real life, um, you know, our so-called elites, uh, really do, um, you know, concentrate themselves. And, uh, and so that's something I kind of was playing with in these books as well. Nice one. Let's, let's change tact a little bit and let's talk about sex, baby. That was on the list, Nathan. Yes. There's, they, these books have sex in them. That's outrageous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's fantastic. They're, I think the, the sex scenes are really well done. And I don't know, what it, is it hard to write a sex scene? I mean, it, it's, I've never tried to sit down and I've never sat down and written a sex scene. What, what do you think about that when, you, yes. when you're doing, when you're writing? It, that's a interesting question i um you know i i always thought that i liked good sex scenes and that they were hard to do you know and there are a lot of pretty good books 
where the sex scenes are either very, very muted, um, you know, or just implied, or they're um, not that well done compared to the rest of the book. So I wanted to do that, you know, as a writing challenge and also because I enjoy it, enjoy writing it and doing it. And so, you know, <laughs> I, it's all a very positive thing in my opinion. So I was really hoping to be able to pull that off. Um, you know, what uh, the second book is more explicit. I'll say that in the first one, I was holding back a little bit. And then uh, I read um, like a, a romance book in between writing the first and second ones from a friend, a friend of mine, a writer friend who wrote the very, a very big 650 page romance that was pretty fascinating. It was like based on Hamlet only with, you know, Mormons in Utah reenacting Hamlet. And it also had, you know, it had some explicit sex scenes, I guess, more so than I would have written it. And I thought, you know, these are pretty great. And in the second book, I'm going to cut loose a little bit more and, and, and maybe be a little more explicit. You might, whatever the word is. And, and so, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm glad you liked them because it's something that's, uh, it's hard to do, I think, and a lot, and there's not enough of it that's really well done out there. So that's my thinking, I guess, on the general topic. Now, one of the authors that I grew up with and got way before my time, as in age-wise, was John Norman with The World of Gore. And yes. um, a lot of people will take a bunch of that out of context, and, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but he's one that I think put a lot of power into his sex scenes. There, there are more there. He, he got into the ideals, the idea, the thoughts behind. Why do you do this? Or if you say this, this happens. And I feel you brought that into your books. In both of them, in several of them, you saw that dynamic. And I hadn't really read anything along that lines since Norman. I read Norman uh you know, at least a couple, two or three of his books probably when I was young and they did, uh, they're pretty powerful because the, the dynamic of, you know, male and female and the differences and the complementarity of it. Um, and you know, the, 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 the dominance and submission aspects of, of, you know, heterosexual sex, which are always there. Um, you know, you no matter what and, and uh, i think that's something that i uh you know tried to handle in the books with some respect and but just to be real i mean i um yeah i think that i hope i did a good job on that because that's you know you can, you can take the strongest woman in the world which some of my female characters are but when it comes to actual uh you know sexuality they're much different than a man and you know that's um my forthright view and it's probably not too popular amongst the uh certain you know liberal crowd or whatever these days but that's the way it is in my opinion well you made them feminine i, th I think that's the key they try to write that out and try to make everyone neutral and you didn't you took the neutral part out and made that male, female, masculine, femininity, you put those in there in a, you can't argue those points. You have something, <laughs> Graham. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> just lots of things, but um, 
the, the sex scenes definitely get the SG Smith seal of approval or stamp of approval. And I think one of the reasons she's been kind of at me to finish, first of all, finish the first book and then finish the second book um, is because she thought they were good. So, you know, this is not just, it's not just three old guys sitting around talking about sex and saying how great it is and how good the sex scenes are. There's, you know, there's, there's women who are reading your stuff who, who think it's fantastic as well. So I think that that's a good perspective to have. So that, that was just, what I was, uh, what I was smirking about. The other thing is, you know, and this is kind of just me continuing to plug Susan's stuff in, in her story world, there, there are sex scenes coming as well, which sounds a little bit outrageous if you've only read the first two at the moment, but in, a, in about another hundred thousand words, um, some of that stuff is going to percolate through. So I'm just putting that out there as well. But I think reading your stuff has, helped her think about how she's writing that stuff for her characters. Uh, and they've grown up quite a lot in the story when they get to that stage as well. But um, it, it's been an influence, I know. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that. I love her books and I figured, I look forward to more, definitely more. Uh, and, and the whole big story as it develops, um, you know, and one other thing I'll just add about that is, you know, we talked about the mystical part and, and I, um, to me, sex is a very mystical thing. Um, you know, the pleasure of the act and, and the physicality and all that. Well, that's fantastic. That's great. Um, but over the years, you know, I come, come to understand, and part of it was this esoteric reading, Graham, that you're talking about. You probably have seen over various authors different from different genres, different countries have talked about the you know, the mind expanding aspects of sex. And, and that's something that's, um, that I really put in there and emphasized. And, you know, it, it's my view of the way it is in real life. And so I incorporated that. It's, it's such a, an amazing thing in the mind, at the way, the way it, it uh, affects people's minds, not just their bodies. Nice one. It, what just this isn't just another random thing, but I'll just throw it out there. Do you, I don't know whether you remember, um, or you probably do remember. We sometimes we've had conversations on in Twitter and our DMs about knives, and I, I know on your podcast with Nathan the other day, the Bowie knife pops up uh, as as a topic of conversation. It's there in book one, and it pops up in book two. So I really enjoyed reading about the Bowie knife and how how it kind of uh, it's kind of a character in the story in a sense. But the one I wanted to just mention was the um, the Gerber folding pocket knife, which is a knife I, I should have should have brought it with me. It's a pocket knife that we both have, and we I think we both have the identical pocket knife. So there's a funny kind of synchronicity there. But then I was really that that's it that's it right there. <laughs> but it pops up in the second book. And I wasn't expecting that. So that's, that was a really nice surprise. So I just, I just thought I'd mention that, that I, I kind of uh, had a little chuckle when it, uh, when it popped up. All right. Well, yeah, I, I'm, you know, it edged weapons. There's, they're an ancient, ancient thing. I feel a connection with my ancestors. Um, <clears throat> there was a TV show I watched a while back and they tested out a bunch of different weapons on those like gelatin dummies with, you know, they, those are they have fun. Whip- they have ribs and everything. And uh, so the Viking battle axe is now what I want. I mean, I always liked Viking battle axe. And so they tested all these weapons 
and the Viking battle axe is basically the most like fearsome weapon out of everything they tested when the guy took a real swing <laughs> with it. <laughs> so pocket knife, you know, I, I always wish normally I, I, I wish that I had more like a Bowie buoy. It's more, you know, it's kind of buoy is I guess the pr pr pronunciation. And, and, but, uh, something bigger i have a few bigger fixed blade knives that i sometimes i would be more comfortable carrying those around in this pocket knife but it's a damn good pocket knife and uh could probably defend your life with it at least semi-effectively there we go nice one i i used mine uh extensively we did a, a family trip through the south island of new zealand and it was it was every day cutting up apples and you know buttering bread and very kind of domestic uh chores for, for, a, for such a knife, but it was fantastic for that as well. So yeah, really interesting. And just on the on the subject of Viking battle axes, Nathan, in the background above your head, there's oh. definitely something hanging on your wall. Yeah, that, that that's a French and Indian War, um, yeah, Warhammer battle axe. I, I I'm I'm right in the middle, Neil. I I really like axes, but I, I lean toward hammers just a little bit more. <laughs> so they can do a lot of damage in a short period of time, but yeah, that's an, that's a reproduction one. But uh, yes, I, I like my sharp-edged weapons also. <laughs> and and I think and, and I've seen some of the uh, what you were talking about where they were practicing and um, warhammers were you know w what are you going to go after? They wanted to punch through armor. That was one yeah. of the big ones. But the other thing is you have all this armor on your body, and that's when Warhammers really came about. Well, what was the easiest thing to hit? The skull. Well, unfortunately, axes stick in skulls where hammers don't. They just poke holes. So, and I, I don't know if they've ever practiced that, but in reading through my histories and my books and stuff, that's why a lot of guys would use those because it'd punch through armor and it'd punch through skulls. So. But yeah, and that then makes sense. and then I have a, a a second one which is is based off an Iroquois warhammer or uh, um, not warhammer uh, war club. So yes, I like smashing things. <laughs> <laughs> so so I mean we're coming up probably close to time, and just want to be mindful of that, uh, Neo. Particularly on your side of things, I know you've got other stuff to do. I think you said on Twitter recently you're you've started on book three. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I I have I have not written a lot of words in book three, but uh, I did like kind of pre pro, preview and promise a little bit. Um, so book three is titled Intelligence, and it oh we got is, a title now. I, yes, I, it's we, got I, a title. <laughs> Big news. Uh, so intelligence is um, is going to explore a lot of like what the early days of the outfit and some of the of how it all evolved and, and so on. There's a lot of stuff from the 40s and 50s that I've been working on, um, and there will be those some um, some sections at, at the end about today and up through the next couple years um, exploring our current situation, <laughs> but. Uh, a lot of it is uh, going to be, um, yeah, the, the origins of the outfit and some of the people um, 
that were operating back then and it is going to be uh in linear time sequence it's going to start in 1945 and each scene is going to be in a period you know in a date after the one that came before it so <laughs> just i wanted to try that out you know there we go well and, and for being a um let's see a pre-book that would actually work into the other one scattering a little bit so yeah, yeah, I think I your your, your narrative method where things jump around anyway means that you know you you've got the scope is wide open for you to do any number of sequels because you can kind of slot into past, present, future really, really nicely. Yeah, well, that's how you know when I wrote Sanity, I didn't really plan on a sequel. I just wanted to write the book, and um, and some people had nice things to say about it some people asked about writing another one i thought well i think i could do it and so i had to figure out how to do it because it, it wasn't set up with some cliffhanger at the end exactly it kind of was i guess but uh, but i decided i that i would explore all the things not all the things i explore some things that took place in the spaces between mostly i did advance the story uh with a couple of scenes um, from a year, one year later, and a couple of scenes from the next day. <laughs> Most of it, though, is in between spaces uh, from Sanity. And in this book, yeah, I, I'm not sure if Cal Adler is going to be in it or not. He might be in it at the very end. I haven't got that part yet. Mostly I've been writing the stuff from the 1950s so far. Um, there's a lot of smoking involved, you know. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I will say. I was just thinking last night, reading through book two, uh, not so much the smoking, but the whiskey drinking. Every you know, I was reading chapter after chapter, thinking, "Damn, I need to go and get some of those whiskeys." <laughs> <laughs> and then it's well, it's funny because the you know Cal's a whiskey drinker, and then um, his martini experience in book one it is a big turning point and a lot of things happen based on a couple of martinis um but uh you know i get the, i never really say for sure but i imagine that uh he he does both and at the very end of reality which we won't say too much about how it ends but uh, he is back to drinking whiskey so um yeah i i i drink both in moderation martinis and whiskey and you know, I like them both. So I managed to work them both in, you know, privatized traditionally, there was always a lot of whiskey in, uh, you know, in Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and, and all of those guys, there was always whiskey drinking. And it's a little bit of a tradition in the private eye field. Do you have a, an ideal uh, martini ratio of um, ingredients? Well, yeah, you know, I I have um, I noticed in the old days, really the nineteen the original nineteen twenties nineteen thirties martini recipes had a lot more vermouth than people use now. A lot of people now sneer at vermouth or something. I um, I add a dash. I don't measure it out. I pour in just like a little uh, one glug from the. Uh, <laughs> you know, from, from the vermouth. And that's the way I like it. It's, uh, and, and I'm a gin martini guy. So, Do you keep your gin uh, in the freezer? That, I used to do that. Um, now what I do, I have a very lovely metal shaker 
I believe in only metal shakers. And uh, I, I'll put, I'll fill it up with ice. I'll put it and the glasses in the freezer for at least 15, 20 minutes so that all the apparatus is like super chilled. But, uh, you know, uh, if I had the facilities, at one time when I was a single guy, I would just make the martini. I just kept a bottle of gin in the freezer and I just poured it into a glass and that was it. There was no shaking or anything involved, but uh, I learned better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm still learning. So thanks for the tips. I appreciate that. Uh, like Lisa says, it'll never be better than right now. You pour that thing out into the icy glass and you want to drink about a third of it within the first 30 seconds because, <laughs> I mean, that's my opinion. You know, in, in a lot of the old movies, you'll see them, they'll set the thing down and it'll sit there a while and then they'll pour some more out of it like 10 minutes later. Um, and by then it's just water as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Got to pour the whole thing out immediately and drink it fast. There we go. Well, I think we're coming up to our time. So this has been a great conversation. I, I wish we could go on for longer because we have more to what we were thinking about talking about today, but we have some time restraints. So, so we're, we're keeping it down and I'm sure we can make this happen another time. So, uh, real quick, Neil, where can we find you at? Uh, on Twitter, Neil Victorian 23, no underlines, no hyphens. Um, and uh, my books, Sanity and Reality, are available on Amazon in hard, well, no, in soft cover and uh, for your Kindle. Um, and you can just search up or Neo Victorian, the author, search that up. I got a page. Uh, so I hope people enjoyed talking about this. Um, and I love to talk about my books. If you want to contact me on Twitter, it's Neo Victorian 23. And Graham, and I know you're all over the place, Graham. Where's the easiest ways to get you? Probably the easiest place is on Twitter as well. So I'm at Smith underscore Graham on Twitter. And there's, there's other links to my stuff on there as well. But I just encourage everybody to, uh, if you haven't read Sanity or Reality, uh, get out there and get a copy of it. It's fantastic. Absolutely. And this concludes this week's. I hope you guys all enjoyed. And... Uh, look forward to the next one. Have a great day. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you.